Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of A Tired Grad Student Study Psychology. My name is Nick. I'm a second year grad student studying clinical counseling and psychology and I'm using this podcast to really help me to study for a test that I have coming up at the end of the summer. And uh, you know, today we're going to talk about uh, Freud's legacy, the Neo-Freudians. And this is really a group of people who mostly agreed with Freud, but have broken away from him primarily because of his sexual stages so uh they have some really cool ideas i really like the near 40 this might be a little bit longer podcast episode but uh, it's very fascinating so before we talk about the near 40 and you know what they thought about personality and what they thought about you know mental health we really got to review freud because he's just so much <laughs> And so, uh, you know, think about um, Freud's idea of the unconscious and conscious. He, he had the tripartite personality, which was the id, ego, and the superego. Uh, remember that the id was part of the unconscious that was uh, influenced by the pleasure principle. Uh, so think of a primitive brain, something that is affected by power, sex, money, and all those things, and, and doesn't really care about the... Um, the consequences to get those things it, it's it's just there to find pleasure the ego is um you know in the middle of that you know the ego re- really represents the uh reality principle and uh the best way to think about that is to think about the a horse and its rider you know the the horse is the id you know it's it's just there to be you know it's affected by its pleasures whereas the rider is the ego he really knows reality and is able to sort of guide the id or the horse to wherever it needs to go based on reality and then finally uh the super ego is part of the unconscious that uh, really influences or is influenced by the ideal self or you know think of a the ego ideal and uh, this is more of like the the angel on the shoulder you know it, it has this idea of what we should be and how we should act and is really trying to get that person to to be like that so that's really the the unconscious and conscious mind you know, next we have the defense mechanisms. You know, remember that uh, Freud and his daughter Anna Freud, uh, they really were revolutionary um, by thinking about now how do we handle all these things that the id, ego, and superego bring to us? And um, really, uh, the thought of d- defense mechanisms help with that. And so they are strategies that are brought on by the unconscious to protect someone or to distort reality. And uh, remember that you know, they, they ward off really unwanted thoughts and feelings from the conscious. So think of, you know, or remember repression, denial, projection, displacement. These are all mechanisms we use to sort of ward off the um, unwanted, unconscious thoughts, uh, behaviors, and feelings. Um, and, and we still use some of this language today. It's really uh, fascinating. If you want to learn more about that, go back one episode, and uh, I go into a lot of detail about that. You know, and finally, uh, some of the other things that Freud 
really helped us to understand was, you know, how does psychoanalysis really translate into therapy? Uh, that's what we're studying is, is now psychotherapy. How can we use it? And although uh, Freud had some interesting ideas, uh, he didn't have the best ideas in my opinion, except for a few things that we'll talk about. Um, but the first one was, you know, he used dream, in, dream interpretation to uh, really find the quote-unquote the road to the unconscious he thought he could read dreams and and figure out okay I know exactly what your it is trying to say or your ego is trying to say or whatever he used dreams to sort of help people heal and I don't I just don't think that we know enough about dreams to really have that much um, wherewithal with that the next uh, thing he used was free association, um, and this was really sharing all of your thoughts freely without hesitation. I see a place for this. Um, I'm not going to say that it's really good or bad. I just think that the therapist is there. This is a personal thought, but I think the therapist is there to help guide you, but uh, you are really in control of your therapy, so I, I, I get that in a way, but no, you can't just sit there in a session for 30 minutes just going on and on and on about different things. It's, it's not really going to get you anywhere. He also talked about talk therapy, which I really love. I, that's mostly what we use now. I mean, it's the standard in therapy. But uh, he really went against what was commonly used, which was hypnosis. And he said, you know what, instead of just hypnosis, Metizing people, you know, let's uh, let's use free association and really talk about what you're thinking, uh, you know, that sort of metacognition. And uh, he also did this, um, we didn't talk about this much, but he also used, or at least the, the psychoanalyst at the time used what's called a Rorschach or a TAT test, the thematic appreciation test. We're going to talk about the metrics of this uh, um, in a later episode. I, I think it's good to talk about why we don't use these tests anymore. But the Rorschach test, are, is, it's very commonly known now as you know just these in block tests that you uh, show a client and they sort of use free association to say, hey, this is what it reminds me of. And the person who's giving the test is really going to know about the unconscious from that you know there's a lot of things they do besides that like writing down how many times they say something or where they're looking at but it's it's really a subjective test and we don't really use that anymore and so uh, yeah we're going to talk about a lot about that in the psychometrics episode but for right now that's that's sort of what they used uh, as well so finally we get into the psychodynamic theory, and uh, there's a lot of history there. Um, the fun thing about the history of psychology is there's a lot of drama. <laughs> no, there's, it's just like uh, teenagers just being teenagers, you know, just a lot of drama, like snitching and all that, and um, yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of that. So in 1902, uh, after the publication of the Interpretation of Dreams by Freud, he founded the Psychological Wednesday Society, and he later renamed that to the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. But it was just a time where he invited his friends, and they sort of talked about psychoanalysis. It's, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. And he had an inner circle 
of people known as quote unquote the committee uh, we're not going to talk about the committee you'll probably hear some of these names again but uh they consisted of sandor frenchy i'm going to pronounce all these names wrong oh gosh hans Sachs, otto rank carl abraham max eddington and ernest jones and that was the committee but you know later on uh the international psychoanalytics association was founded and you know freud named carl Jung. you know his closest student really you know that if you think about Jung, he was a student of freud's to lead the next sort of wave in psychoanalysis now Around this time, though, Jung was becoming, you know, critical of Freud, actually. You know, he, and he actually split from Freud officially around 1913. You know, and after that, uh, we had Alfred Adler, who was the first president of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society. And then we had Eric Erikson, who earned his degree from the Psychoanalytic Institute in 1933, and then Karen Horney, which was the first woman from the Vienna Psychoanalytic Institute. And uh, these are the people we're gonna talk about today. Um, They're very fascinating. I had a great, I had a fun time researching them, hence why this episode is coming out a little bit later. So starting off with Carl Jung, there's a lot to say about Carl Jung, and we're not going to talk about everything uh, because, to be honest, it will take a long time to really get into the meat and potatoes of Jung, but we're going to start with sort of the overview of him. He's very cool, in my own opinion, and yeah, we'll, we'll just dive right in here. Jung hated that Freud spent way too much time talking about sex and really talked about, you know, just really pointed out the flaws in his thinking about sex and personality. So he, he later split from Freud and developed analytical psychology. You know, he, he really focused on balancing the opposing forces of the conscious and unconscious thoughts, whereas Freud just really talked about all three of them. He he really fo- narrowed it down to the conscious and unconscious thought. He's very famous for his contributions in uh, collective unconscious archetypes, and even his work on introversion and extroversion are revolutionary. So collective unconscious uh, really started in 1960 with his uh, publication of the structure of the unconscious. And he thought that uh, we shared a mental concept that was deep within our unconscious that are genetically inherited, which is, you know, as when I was researching this, I thought that was really interesting that he, he basically said, look, you can inherit some unconscious thought through your genes. And it's something to think about. I want you to think about that. You know, are we, do we have a collective unconscious? And we'll go a little bit more into this. Because he said this is common to everyone, you know, and it's, and it's really expressed through archetypes. So archetypes are symbols, uh, signs, and patterns of thinking and behavior that are inherited through our ancestors, you know, and he, he really said in his book, The Structure of the Psyche, that 
all the most powerful ideas in history go back to archetypes you know and um we really if you if you want to sit there and think for a second about movies plays you know any sort of work of art they're multicultural you know you if you read a story let's say from um dark ages europe to um a story like in ancient china they're gonna have this sort of the same archetypes and what are these archetypes well i'll read off some of them they're the persona the hero the shadow the self the trickster and others like the sage the rebel the caregiver and the lover and these are really fascinating you know just some examples here the hero you know overcomes evil and death i mean that's a that's an archetype that we all in his mind know and are unconscious you know there's the persona which is the mask used to conceal our innermost being from the outside world uh, the shadow is the person's immoral and dark aspects akin to the id and for his theory so um I've heard of, uh, you know, archetypes used in The Lion King, and I think it's actually really cool to think about that. Yeah, uh, you know, if you think about Scar, he really identified well with the shadow, you know, just basically wanting power and really doing anything he can to do that. And, and a little bit of the trickster, too. And the trickster is just a child seeking gratification. Um, and they become cruel and unfeeling in the process. So I think actually Scar would be more the trickster than the shadow because he he just wants to be ruler of Pride Rock because he's younger. You know, he, he's just jealous of his brother because he got to be the ruler of Pride Rock. So yeah, those are archetypes. And what's really cool about that is, yeah, it's genetically passed on. And, uh, you know, we get these ideas of really what food is, what uh, joy is, and all that through genetic links uh, in our genome. And so, yeah, I think that's really fascinating, something to think about. Yeah, it's really cool. So we also have an introversion and an extroversion. And, you know, he, Young did a lot of good work on introversion and extroversion. You know, and we, we still use some of these thoughts today. So he said that introversion is the energy that is derived from inner the inner psyche. You know, they are more quiet, reserved, and they really direct their energy inward. You know, they interpret the world subjectively. Whereas extroversion is energized by social gatherings. You know, they're the life of the party. They are always loud and lively. And they direct their energy outwards. And they interpret the world objectively. You know, and Jung really believed that to be self-realized or self-actualized, it was best to find the balance between the two. I really like Jung. He he has some really cool thoughts, especially with the collective unconscious. That's sort of a uh, philosophical thing to think about for a long time is, is, is what I understand about the world genetic or is it, you know, there's a, there's a great debate in personality psychology called the tabula rasa, and it's uh, literally translates to the blank slate. So the question is, are we born with a tabula rasa, a blank slate, and then we just add on top of that as we grow? Or 
are we born with a collective unconscious that is passed down through generation and generation? Um, it's really something to think about. Next, we're gonna dive into Alfred Adler. Um, Adler is another one of those guys that uh, had some really cool ideas. Um, you know, he was coming up in his career and he wrote a defense of Freud's theory after reading The Interpretation of Dreams. And he joined Freud and some others at the Wednesday or the Vienna Society. And uh, he was really the first president of that society. So he was up there in the ranks with psychoanalytic theory. But they later split in on 1911 after years of disagreements about who came up with this theory of aggression which drives the libido. They couldn't agree on who found it first. And so they later split from that. But in his absence of Freud, Adler really came into his own. And uh, he founded the school of psychology called Individual Psychology. And now uh, he suggested that each person is compensating for inferiority. You know, and this is done by striving for superiority. You know, so what does that mean? The inferiority complex uh, is, he, he quoted, uh, it's the persons are, that are always striving to find a situation in which they excel. You know, it's a person's feeling that they lack worth and don't measure up to the society's standards. You know, it's the inability to cope with feelings of real or imagined physical or psychological deficiencies and feelings of depression. So it it goes much more into quoquely what we know as inferiority. It, you know, inferiority that we think is just oh, I want to be taller because I'm less than average height. It's not really inferiority to what Adler said. You know, he, he actually says, you know, everyone has a feeling of inferiority, but the feeling of inferiority is not a disease. It's rather a stimulant to healthy, normal striving and development. You know, he also goes on to say that it becomes path pathological condition when the only sense of inadequacy overwhelms the individual and far from stimulating them to use useful activity, you know, it makes them depressed and incapable of development. So that was a lot of words that Adler said. Now, basically he says, you know, feeling inferior is not that bad, but what makes it bad is like this pathological condition when we just are consumed by the thoughts that we are inadequate and therefore we need to do something and and sort of that drive of wanting to become better and better and better is what Adler said that comprised of personality you know that's really what led to your personality so so to, to differentiate that from Freud Freud remember Freud said that we are motivated by sexual urges whereas Adler said that inferiority in children is what drives adults to gain superiority and it, it is that force behind all of our behaviors thoughts and emotions so the driving force isn't sexual anymore it's about inferiority 
it's really cool to think about, especially when you struggle with, you know, what we would say insecurity or depression, you know, where, where is that coming from? Is it from your thought of inadequacy or is it from something else? Adler would say it's from your inadequacy. You know, and inferiority has really two components. There's the primary and the secondary. The, the primary is, quote-unquote, the original and normal feeling from infants. It is productive and it provides motivation for development. Whereas the secondary component results when the child develops an exaggerated feeling of inferiority. So I don't think Adler would say that we are sort of born with inadequacy, but we, we sort of develop it over time. No, Adler really gave rise to this idea of personality by the birth order. He was really the first one to sort of sit down and look at the birth order and determine some personality traits that come from it. You know, he did extensive work on this, and what we, what I learned from undergrad and something that you have to sort of put in the back of your mind is whenever someone has a theory like this, uh, we talked about this a lot with Freud, we have to make sure that it is studied, it is verified by science, and that we can replicate these. Uh, Adler didn't do that, you know. He, you know, he just did a lot of thinking, and I think they are really good thoughts, and that's why I put it in this episode. But we have to also make sure that we're not just saying that okay, this is true, this is one hundred percent, because it's not. So he went on to say that the firstborn child. Uh, again, this is very simplified. This is out of three children, so you'll get that as we go on. But sort of the firstborn child is the person who receives the most attention. You know, they are more independent and more mature. But if there's a second child, this is also true for an only child. But if there's a second child, uh, they can feel dethroned, and um, you know they're much more reliable, cooperative and they have a greater confidence. We go to the second child, which I'm actually the middle child, so this is the second and middle child. Um, they grow up sharing attention from the parents, firstborn, and um, they're more likely to be cooperative and the peacekeeper. You know, the child who is either middle or second tends to be a follower, and you know, they tend to follow more of the example of the older sibling. You know, they're much more flexible, uh, they're much more attention-seeking, patient, and friendly. You know, in the last born, and this is, he would say this is for any last born, you know, of five, six, seven children, and oh my goodness, heaven forbid it if you have seven children. <laughs> Good luck to you. You know, the last born cannot be dethroned, you know, because they're the last child. And they tend to receive more attention and develop some sort of independence. They are more risk-taking, attention-seeking, and sensitive. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot more thought into this, but I didn't really see it, a lot of it. But Adler also talked about twins. He talked about, you know, two children, more than, you know, three. So he did talk a lot about um, what we would consider probably not a normal family structure, but uh, I just couldn't find a lot of information on that. So... But yeah, that's that's the birth order. Hello, future Nick here. Uh, this episode turned out to be an hour long, so we are going to split it in between two episodes. Uh, the first one will just go through Alfred Adler, and the second one will go through Eric Erickson and Karen Hornai. 
I had a lot of fun uh, researching the Nier Freudians, and you'll hear on the outro on the second one that it was a lot of fun. So tune in next time as I talk about the, the rest of the Nier Freudians, and we're going to actually switch it up, have some bonus content and, and all that. It's going to be an awesome time, but thanks for joining in, and until next time, study hard.